Let's pray together. Father, we have had a a number of different things we've been expressing to you this morning, our praise, our confession of our sin, our acknowledgement that we need to draw close to you and to find your mercy, to find your grace. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who gives grace and mercy. Uh, We thank you, Father, also that your word is food for our souls, that it is alive, it is active, it penetrates deep down into our inner motives, what goes on inside of us. And we also know, Lord, your word is powerful enough to change a heart. And so we pray, Lord, that your word would, like a hammer, break any hardened hearts that might be here today and also offer us, Lord, the grace and mercy and encouragement in the gospel that we seek. We ask these things through Jesus' name. Amen. I'm bringing this to you this morning a, a visual aid that's not very helpful. So I'm just going to acknowledge it doesn't work very well, but I'm going to use it anyway. So this is a glass chessboard. Maybe you can't see it very well, but that's what it is. And it has a, a series of courses, you know, uh, see-through squares, and then it has opaque squares you can't see through, and, and, and these are all laid out, as you would understand, to play chess. This is my son, bought this on vacation one year, and uh, the point of this particular illustration is to ask the question, oh, how, many, how many have played chess first, or checkers, either one, chess or checkers? Okay, many of us, all right. Imagine if we said to you, <clears throat> we'd like to suggest you play chess or checkers without the square board. Just go ahead and play any way you want. Forget the squares. And forget the fact that you need 16 pieces for chess. Just make up as many pieces as you want. And play the game however you feel like. You can move them any way you want. And you can move anywhere you want to go, including all over this room. At that point, you have to ask yourself, does that kind of freedom give you a game to play? Or is true freedom, freedom that has boundaries, freedom that has a framework in which we understand within that framework we find true freedom in order to accomplish that which the game is designed to do? So that's my question. Not a very helpful visual illustration, but hopefully you get us to think a little bit about freedom. Now why are we talking about freedom? Because freedom should be the one word you associate in your mind when you think of the book Galatians. As someone has said years ago, Galatians has been called the Magna Carta of, the, of Christian liberty. Because Paul, when he spoke, when he gives this book, he is very concerned about the loss of freedom that should not take place. And he says in chapter 5 of Galatians, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. That's what the gospel is all about. It's about gaining freedom in Christ. And then he goes on to say in chapter 13, Chapter 5, verse 13, you were called to freedom. So therefore we understand the gospel of grace liberates us. In what way? It liberates us from this condemnation that we know we would deserve and therefore is coming to us because we know we don't keep the law perfectly. None of us does everything that God requires. Only Jesus did that. And the gospel declares that lawbreakers like you and me 
are credited with Christ's righteousness, and we therefore enjoy free access to God, and we're free from condemnation. We're free from all this attempts to try to earn our merit in order to find acceptance before God. Now, Paul, having affirmed this freedom we have in the gospel, he then warns about a danger regarding this freedom. And this is found, again, in verse 15, Galatians 5, 13. He says, Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. What's he talking about? Well, he's concerned. Paul is concerned if you say that you're saved by grace, that is, you didn't do anything to deserve it, it's a free gift given to you, there's a concern that we might indulge our sinful nature, which would therefore lead to, in Paul's mind, further bondage. Not freeing us to enjoy the life that God calls us to enjoy in Christ, but it would actually lead us into bondage, into the flesh. And so true gospel freedom is meant to be enjoyed, I would argue, within certain borders, certain boundaries that Christ has for us that are for our good. And therefore, in enjoying within those borders, we understand the joys of freedom in Christ, in the gospel. Now, I'd like us to think about this idea of the gospel of grace, because some people think that if we talk about grace in the gospel, we get rid of all those borders. Freedom means you're completely free about You can do whatever you want. And some people, as we've said in previous weeks, we've talked about the concern that Paul noted when he said, okay, we're not saved by works, adding to what Christ did, and that's legalism. We're also concerned that we're not going to encourage licentious living, that is, living that is uh, um, playing the rules according to our own way and, and uh, freedom to live... A, irresponsibly to disregard all rules of personal conduct. So that's not what the gospel of grace is all about. If you look with me in in the scriptures here, page 1388 in Galatians chapter 5, I want us to look, we've looked uh, previously at this text, we finished at verse 18, but I want us to notice that Paul's going to add another persuasive argument against the kind of licensed living, to go and do whatever you want, Sin freely. It doesn't make any difference. Just do whatever you want because we all live in grace. And he clearly argues against that in this text. And I'd like to begin reading in verses 19 to verses 24. And this is going to be the first message of many in this passage. We're going to unfold this over many weeks. Verse 19. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Here in this text of Scripture, and I hope if anything comes through this morning, I hope this will become clear. 
that if we understand and have applied the gospel of grace to our hearts and lives, we understand that there is an incompatibility with the thought of suggesting that we live our life now controlled by the flesh rather than being a life that's controlled by the Spirit of God, and that what we're going to understand is that gospel freedom is going to show it makes no sense to live a life of indulging the flesh because the flesh and the Spirit are opposites. And there's a significant difference between those two, and the two do not go together at all as a result of the gospel of grace. The flesh and the Spirit are polar opposites, in three areas. Here we are, our outline this morning, three areas. First area, the spirit against the flesh. There are two opposing motivational systems. Motivational systems. I get this out of verse 17, which I have read in previous weeks, because he talks about the flesh setting its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. He talks about desires here. Now, when he talks about flesh, let me back up and just make sure I'm clear on what that term means. When I use the term flesh, I'm not talking about your human flesh as in your skin and your bones and body. That is one understanding of that terminology in the Bible. But in this text, when he uses the term flesh here, Paul's referring not to our physical nature. He's referring to our unredeemed sinful humanity. He's talking about the part of us that is not renewed by the Spirit of God. He's talking about when the fact that the flesh celebrates the fact that when self is supreme, when self is on the throne, that is the flesh. That's the part of us that says, I want to do what I want to do. But the flesh belongs, obviously longs to live beyond God's limits. The flesh says, I don't want to be held back. I don't want to have to submit to anybody or anything. I want to do what I want to do. Whereas we talk about the the flesh loves to use and loves to worship creation rather than the creator. And so therefore we would understand our flesh desires to find ultimate security and ultimate uh, uh, significance attempting to be our own savior, living life apart from God, being our own Lord. That's what the flesh is all about. Now, if you contrast that with the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God points us to a whole other direction. This side, it's pointing towards self. Here, the Spirit is pointing us toward whom? Toward Christ. Christ is the Spirit of God who resides within every believer. And it is the Spirit of God who reminds us again and again in the gospel that Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is the one who, in love, he's the only one who can save us from our sins. Because Jesus has kept the law. It is Jesus who we find in him forgiveness. We find restoration into a right standing with God through Jesus Christ for those who fully rely upon him and what he did on the cross through his resurrection from the dead as being a substitute for us. And the Spirit does not promote self-confidence. The Spirit of God directs our hearts to Jesus to being amazed at his greatness, the greatness of his grace and mercy and love. And instead of licentious living, which means just yearning and desiring to live outside the boundaries of what God has revealed his will to be, the Spirit of God creates within our hearts a yearning in the opposite direction, toward holiness of life. 
And rather than trying to escape the boundaries that God designs for us to live within, the Spirit of God directs our hearts to desire God's plan for us, to become conformed to the image of Christ. That's what God wants us to pursue. That's what He wants in the heart of His people. The Spirit of God is saying, move in this direction toward Christ-likeness. Not toward the flesh, toward Christ-likeness. So I'll give you an example of how this works itself out. The Apostle Paul himself, let's say. When you think about him, we think about the impact of the Spirit of God in him, his own desires of his heart. Let's think about what his life was like before he was saved. He was called Saul. He went by the name Saul. And he was intolerant of anybody who did not adopt and anyone who didn't conform to his view of what he thought was right. And he hated those people. He had a hothead. He was an angry guy, violent. And he would attack anybody who opposed his way of thinking. And he tried desperately, he was motivated out of a zeal that was really self-centered, trying to find his own righteousness, trying to to become a person he thought would be appropriate and, and accepted by God. And he was trying to earn his own merit through the keeping of the law. And his life was all about himself. His desires were to justify himself in other people's eyes and ultimately in God's eyes by doing his own thing. But what will happen after he's saved? What's the difference? Paul's reaction to those who opposed him is entirely different. Because the reason is because his own heart has now new desires. They have now changed. They've modified. His motive is now to please Christ. Not because he's trying to become better for Christ. It's because he's living out of a thankfulness to Christ. He is so grateful for what Christ has done for him. He is now saying, my desire is to live for the one who purchased me and bought me with his own blood. And so he says, for me to live, he says, Philippians 1, is Christ. That's the one I'm living for. I'm not living for myself. I'm living for Christ. And the gospel rescued him from himself and his own self-righteousness. And now it's motivating him to bring the gospel to the lost, to the people who clearly are nowhere close to living the way he thought they should have been living before he was a Christian. But now he lays down his life, he serves them, he speaks to them truth and love, and he deals with all their anger, all their violent reaction, which is the same thing he was giving out to other people. And interestingly enough, he has so changed in his desires that now Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that he's boasting about his weaknesses. He's taking pride, in a sense, in that he has many weaknesses. What kind of weaknesses? Well, he he gets insulted. He has all kinds of distress in his relationships around him because he's being persecuted. He's all kinds of difficulties he runs into for Christ's sake. And Paul wants to become more like Jesus. And he's learning that the process that the Spirit of God is working him through to become more like Jesus is to become more humble. And he's learning that humility is, oftentimes humility means God doesn't take the trial away. He teaches us in the middle of the trial to rely on God's grace and to keep us from being boastful because we have to rely on the strength of the one who is almighty and we have to admit we're weak, we cannot do it on our own. And so I was so glad to hear Michael citing the verse uh, in the previous hour, in the Sunday school hour of Second Corinthians chapter five, and I would again cite that as you talk about new desires in a believer who understands the gospel of grace. The desire is this: 
2 Corinthians 5.9, we have as our ambition, this is the Spirit talking now, Paul with the Spirit leading Paul to say this, we have as our ambition to what? To be pleasing to Him. The flesh says, it is my ambition to be pleasing to me. But the Spirit says, no, my desire is to be, my ambition is to be pleasing to Christ. He says, Christ died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's a radical new direction from our desires. I'm desiring to please Christ. Not because I have to, but because I want to. Out of gratitude and love. So the gospel of grace declares that all of those, all of those who repent, all of those who believe and trust in Christ and rely upon what He did for them, they are set free from condemnation. And they break the chain of this ball we drag behind us of all our guilt and all of our shame and all of our inadequacies of failing in breaking the laws of God. So now we break that chain. We're now free to live. And what does freedom mean? It means now my desire says, I'm living not for myself. I'm living for Christ. So Paul says it makes no sense then to say, if you're going to say you celebrate the gospel of grace, you're going to go back and live in the flesh and just indulge in doing whatever you want? No, he says, if you understand the Spirit, Spirit says you've got new desires. And those desires are radically different, my friend. Radically different. Two totally different directions. Christ, living for Christ, or living for self. Much more I could say about that. I want to move to my second point here, and I want to talk about, secondly, this difference between the flesh and the spirit. There are two opposing lifestyles, not only with desires, but there's two opposing lifestyles, motivational and then opposing lifestyles. Paul's going to illustrate this incompatibility of indulging in the flesh in response to the gospel of grace by contrasting the deeds of the flesh on the one hand and the fruit of the Spirit on the other. And Paul's going to list four realms. I'm just going to tell you what the text, I'm just going to break down the text very quickly for us here just to show you the contrast of the differing aspects of these lifestyles between the flesh and the Spirit. Notice what he says, first of all, the flesh produces unchaste deeds. It may give you four words that are starting with the letter U. Unchaste deeds of the flesh. And those involve sins of sexual brokenness. He starts off in the list there in verse 19. He starts off with immorality. It's a very broad term. It's a term that refers to all types of sexual sin which includes basically any kind of sexual intimacy outside the boundaries and bonds of marriage, a heterosexual marriage. Anything that takes place outside of that is involved in sexual immorality. Then he lists two more words which would refer to wanton or out-of-control behavior in the, in, the well, in the realms of our sexuality, flaunting that which is indecent in public sort of be, becoming sexually provocative, in a sense, of wearing things that do nothing but more than entice people. And Paul, clearly as he thinks about these descriptive words for his day, he would look at our day, and Paul, I assure you, would not be surprised by anything he observes in terms of this sexual brokenness. But I assure you, he would be deeply saddened by it. Saddened to see that the same patterns of the flesh 
continue to play out in a culture and society, even today. In the first century Roman Empire, all kinds of sexual sin was rampant. It was involved in their worship, in the ways in which they would celebrate the idea of of gaining the favor of a god was to involve yourself with a temple prostitute. I mean, that's the kind of thinking that was going on there. And so the flesh, whether it's the first century or whether it's the 21st century, the flesh pursues sexual immorality without restraint. And we are seeing that in our day, are we not? No restraints. No one should be telling me what's right and wrong. I'll do whatever feels good. Now, just again, contrast this with what does the Spirit of God say? The flesh says, no restraints, do whatever you want, sexually speaking. The Spirit says what? 1 Corinthians 6, Spirit says, flee immorality. Don't dabble in it, don't think about it, get away from it, run away from it. It's powerful as a, as a force in your life. It can destroy so many aspects of the way God designed you if you get involved in sexual sin. And so notice here that the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of God's people. I'm going to show you now this contrast here, taking the fruit of the Spirit and and the deeds of the flesh. And notice he says, instead of the sexual brokenness, he says the contrasting effect of the Spirit's work in the life of a believer is an ongoing evidence of agape, self sacrificing love that serves the other person and does not take advantage of that person, sexually speaking. And if you'll notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, sorry I didn't write down the page number, but 1 Thessalonians 4 is a fascinating text giving us further explanation of what the Spirit of God desires in this area of, uh, of sexual purity and true agape love in this realm. As you would notice here, verse 3, he says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that is to become more holy, that you abstain from sexual immorality. There it is, right there. And each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, that is, your own body, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no man transgress or defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. That is so clear as to what God is seeking for his people to pursue. That is a life of true love for God that is lived out by love for other people and therefore constraining ourselves to, li- to act out our sexual expression, our intimate sexual expression within the boundaries of what God has set apart as approved by him and for our good and his glory. Much else I could say about that. I just want to keep moving to show you how these contrast. A second area, the flesh also produces deeds of unholiness. The first is unchaste deeds of flesh, and then there's deeds of unholiness. This is in the, in the realm of religion or the realm of spirituality. And he immediately then launches into a very common expression that he would have been seeing all over his culture, which we see all over in our culture, in idolatry. Idolatry is seeking our identity, our security, in anything or anyone other than God. And broadly, this we would understand Paul to say, in using this broad term, he's referring to all false religions. Any form of religion that's not true Christianity 
through Jesus Christ, he is saying this is involved in idolatry. Even pagans, even people who do not even believe that God exists, they are worshipers. They are worshiping something or someone other than God. And so Paul's saying part of this expression of the flesh is that we pursue idolatry, something that takes the rightful place of God in our lives, and we lift it up and make, make it something that's highly valuable to us in the place of God. Then he mentions witchcraft. He mentions sorcery. And here, of course, we're talking about involvement in the occult. And the flesh loves to fashion our own gods, our own idols, so that we might obtain powers that do not belong to us and that we might have power over the invisible world or power over this world in which we live that are not powers that God intends us to have. And so people in the flesh will pursue seances and Ouija boards and black magic and divination and all sorts of attempts of the flesh to somehow obtain power or obtain information that is known only to God. But they do it in the realms of the evil spirits, and therefore they are dabbling in various serious forms of the occult and idolatry. And the Holy Spirit, on the contrast, that's the flesh leading us to move in that direction. The the Spirit of God, on the other hand, works in the hearts of his people to develop a sense of peace, of calmness of soul, of contentment with what God has given us with the limits of what we have, and a joy in submitting to Christ, a joy in realizing the Christ of scriptures is what we really need and have received such tremendous blessings in knowing. And therefore, it's in Christ that we find inner healing and inner wholeness, and we find the peace that passes all understanding in the true children of God. I don't have time to unpack all that, but I am going to go into all these different fruit of the Spirit in future sermons. Now, are you still with me? I'm throwing a lot at you. This is, this is tough going here. I understand. There's a lot packed in here. But we're on third point, okay? The third aspect of the flesh. The flesh produces uncharitable interactions. Uncharitable interactions. That's the sins of relational brokenness. Here the flesh brings about all sorts of breakdown in community. So he mentions enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and envy. So you get hostility, you get all kinds of discord, quarreling, outbursts, divisions, all sorts of, even to the point where you're so frustrated or angry with the person that you say, even if something good happens to you, I resent it. I don't want anything good to happen to you. And so that's the kind of corruption the flesh brings in us. And, and I've thought about this and I said to myself, is that not a description of many families that we all know of? Where these are the kinds of relational brokenness that takes place of fragmented family systems? And then we also think of many marriages, unfortunately, because of the flesh. The, the marriages become a billboard for all of these things. This is the kind of dynamic that, that, that characterizes that marriage. Deeds of the flesh are seen all over the place. And then there are many places of business, wouldn't you also agree, that are characterized by this kind of relational brokenness where the owner despises the people that work for him, takes advantage of them. There's a lack of trust and respect, a lack of charity. What a contrast, the flesh in the brokenness of relationships. The, the Spirit of God, on the other hand, as he works in the hearts of the people of God, begins to change them over time so that he brings forth relational fruit of what? 
I would suggest to you the key terms there is patience, patience, kindness, goodness. What a difference between the, the deeds of the flesh and all oh, what the Spirit does. I don't have to utter out of my mouth defensive words in an argument that contribute further and further to this escalating argument. I can react with a sense of patience that says, I am going to withhold that comment and think and pray so that I say something that would be helpful for the situation. Only the Spirit of God can help us in that area. We've looked at three now. Now we're into fourth. The fourth aspect of the deeds of the flesh that are clearly seen is it produces an undisciplined life or undisciplined deeds that are very evident to see. And this involves sins of substance abuse. Substance abuse. Notice the term he uses there is drunkenness, the first one he mentions. Pointing to the abuse of alcohol, which obviously leads to intoxication. And here what he has in mind is drinking. He's not just saying all drinking per se. He is saying drinking to excess. Drinking to the point where the drink has now taken control of the person. So Paul then adds another term to his drunkenness, and he uses the word carousing. And some of you may have another translation that uses the word orgy. It's the same word from which we get the word orgy. And some of us think of orgy sometimes as an out-of-control party that involves uh, sexual involvement. It can mean that. But I think Paul, in this context, has in mind the kind of parties they had in the Roman world in which they would eat and they would drink to excess to the point at which they're totally wasted. Totally wasted. Wild parties. Getting wasted. Celebrating. Going to the greatest extent of drinking and eating as possible. And what he's saying is that the deeds of the flesh are clearly seen in what? In a life that's what? Get wasted. Get plastered. Go go overboard and be out of control. Do we see that celebrated in our culture today? It's a part of entertainment. Reality shows show people out of control, drunkenness. And showing them as this seems normal, this seems everyday life. Isn't that cool? And I would argue, again, I would just, again, plead with you to have prepared in your own heart and mind, contemplate the verses of Proverbs 23, verses 29 to 35, and listen to what the Spirit of God, in, in, through the writer of Proverbs, writes about. It is an awful, awful mess to be living a life being under the control of alcohol to excess. It is destructive to everyone around you, to yourself, and it is a miserable life. And then I would suggest Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. I'm not arguing now for teetotaling. I'm not saying that. The scriptures are arguing against drunkenness. So you'll notice here that the flesh loves to celebrate the benefits of being what? Out of control. Go to excess. Get plastered, get wasted. That's what the flesh pushes us to do. And what happens when we do that under the control of alcohol? Ephesians 5.18 says it leads to debauchery. 
Debauchery is a big word. It means you, you get to the point where you have no more judgment. You can't think anymore about what's appropriate, what's inappropriate. You just do it. You lost all your judgment, impairs your thinking ability, and therefore it leads to a loose, you lose your sense of propriety. What's appropriate in this situation? Well, I don't care. It just all comes out. Debauchery. And contrast that, that now with the Spirit. The Spirit does what? The Spirit, Holy Spirit control, His control produces completely different fruit in the, in the people of God, and that is the fruit of what? Faithfulness. That is reliability, a person you can count on who keeps their word, gentleness, and self-control. What a contrast. Those are exact opposites, aren't they? Do you think this has just somehow come together in this text? There is incredible divine wisdom packed into Paul's observations on these two opposites between the flesh and the spirit. And again, I would say heavy drinking is such a widespread problem in our culture today, on our college campuses, among our young adults, among really every age group, people who are using drugs or who are using alcohol to excess. And I would suggest to us that a life of excess is a clear indicator that the flesh is playing a dominant role in the heart and life of the person who is out of control. Now, there are many other deeds of the flesh. Those are four. They're listed here, the four categories. And if you'll notice that this is not an exhaustive list, that's pretty obvious when you think about it. There are many areas which we can sense the flesh will be expressed. Notice verse 21, Paul says, and things like these things. So I've just started a list here, and there are many other ways you see the flesh, the works of the flesh. There are many more examples. We could add to that greed and stealing, and gossip, and boastfulness, and being unmerciful, and all those kind of things, and on and on and on you can go. But what I'm trying to help us see here is that at the root of the works of the flesh, Tim Keller is very good on this, at the root of the sins of the flesh is a lack of trust in God, and in His grace, and in His goodness. It's a rejection of God, ultimately. And therefore, there's a sense in which many of these people are trying to escape pain. They're trying to escape difficulty. They're trying to escape having to deal with things they don't want to deal with. And so this becomes an avenue of escaping all of that. And the flesh longs to find acceptance and identity by treasuring the things of this world and the people that God has made instead of the one that we're designed to find our deepest acceptance and significance in our identity in the God who loves us and sent his son Jesus Christ and to find it in the gospel instead. And so look at the contrast. Sexual brokenness, sorry, sexual brokenness in the flesh, sexual wholeness in the spirit. Then there's spiritual brokenness over here on this side. Spiritual wholeness, walking in the truth, worshiping Jesus, knowing the one who will set us free. There is relational brokenness in the flesh, following the flesh. There's relational wholeness, shalom in relationships. And then there is substance abuse, a life of excess over here in the flesh. And on this side, we call it inward wholeness or sobriety, whatever you want to call it. A sense of which I am calm on the inside. I'm not looking to escape. I am am 
at peace with who I am and where God has me. I'm not trying to live to excess. What a contrast, my friends. Now, I've laid those two things out for you, and it leads me to my third point, and this is absolutely critical. We not miss this. We have not only two motivational systems, we also have two different lifestyles, but also there are two opposing destinies. Two opposing destinies. There is ample evidence that the flesh is clearly opposed to the Holy Spirit. There is no communion that exists between the Spirit and the flesh. These people are, these are at odds against each other, he says. And Paul's offering this one exclamation point in his attempts to try to design and, and get us to see, don't be complacent in this area of life. You need to wake up and realize that if you are leaning toward the thought of taking the gospel of grace and moving in the direction of greater and greater licentious living, just let loose and do whatever you want to do. He says, you need to hear me out on this. Verse 21b. He says, I have forewarned you about these things, just as I have forewarned you now, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now that ought to cause all of us to stand still for a moment and realize Paul is very serious at this point. This is a sobering statement designed to wake us all up and say, whoa, wait a minute, that is a powerful thing to affirm. The warning is designed to encourage self-examination. It's designed to encourage self-assessment. Paul is not saying, and this, you hear me clearly on this, Paul is not saying that those who sin shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He does not say that. Because guess what? Christians sin. I sin. Is that, is that new to you people? I hope not. All of us sin. That is what we do. Not that we want to, but we do. And he's not saying that because Christians fall in all of these areas, I would suggest to you. None of us lives perfectly in the realm of the fruit of the Spirit. We all are struggling with different things that, with our flesh. There is relational brokenness. There is spiritual corruption in this. There is spiritual brokenness, sexual brokenness in us in various levels. And even substance abuse can be a problem at times for a Christian. But notice the word in verse 21. The verb is critical to notice. It's the verb practice. Practice. Which gives the impression of not just once or twice an occasional event that may come out of somewhere, but it's talking about a habitual, repeated pattern in a person's life. He is talking about the warning that says, if these works of the flesh are continuous, if they are your pattern of life, that is the norm for you. And that's all that we see in your life, as that is the norm. Then it may well provide evidence that you have never been regenerated. It may indicate that there's never the presence of the Holy Spirit is not operating in your heart and life that you would make that the habitual pattern of your life. I'm not saying that you don't struggle in it. Of course, if you have the Spirit of God and you have one of these areas of the deeds of the flesh, you are struggling against that. That's appropriate. That's understandable. Paul even struggled with these, as he says in Romans chapter 7. But I urge you, don't read this text in a nonchalant way and say, ah, let the Scriptures begin to cause us to think and examine. And so I offer this word of challenge in one of the commentaries I read. He says this, If any of these sins from the deeds of the flesh are characteristic 
or typical of us. And if, especially, if we are unconcerned about it, if we are flippant about it, that is, we don't seem to care, we don't really, it's just the way I am, get over it. If we claim that Christian freedom or easy grace is something that we think is something that we're claiming, he says something is spiritually amiss, something's wrong. And so you ask yourself, is immorality a characteristic of my life, ongoing, unrepented of, a pattern? Is idolatry, is jealousy, is dissension, carousing, out-of-control behavior? If so, it is unlikely that the Spirit of God is present in your life and that you really have never submitted to the Lordship of Christ and the gospel has never really begun that transformation motivated by the Spirit of God who moves us and gives us those new desires. Now, let me just say this. I don't know your heart. So I cannot make that assessment of you, and I will never do that for anybody. But all I'm saying is that as we read this text, we need to also compare it with verses like 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where we read, And by this we know that we have come to know God, if we keep His commandments. And the one who says, I have come to know God, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Now, let me hear me say this again. Good works will never justify any of us, but they will bear witness and they will give evidence that we are saved and we are declared right with God. Because the question is not, what must I do to be saved in terms of my own efforts to somehow make my life better? But the question is, how is my behavior affected by salvation? How is the Holy Spirit working in my heart that makes it look very evident that I am moving in the direction of becoming more like Christ? Do you see the evidence of a new heart? That is a big question to ask, my friend. And if you don't see that, I would again just say, the Spirit of God is opening your eyes to perhaps see for the first time very clearly why you need Jesus to change your heart. We're not talking about self-improvement. We're talking about radical heart transformation. We're talking about the Spirit of God giving you a new heart with new desires and new uh, motivations and new values and new pursuits. It's something that He does in you. And it's all done out of a love for Christ because you've been so overwhelmed by His love shown to you on the cross and in His resurrection for you. May I suggest there's one other thing I want to apply here for this text for my heart as I've prayed over this text. It's a heavy message today. I'm aware of it. But may I say to you, my friends, as I've read this list, I've had people come into my mind who do not have the Spirit of God living within them, who are living in the flesh. That's all they have. They don't know any different. They're spiritually blind. They are unable to change their heart. And I assure you, my friends, there are many, many people I'm sure you know and many people that I know that I've become all the more concerned and burdened for them and determined to pray for them and to be more evident and patient in dealing with them and offering to help them see more and more. My prayer is, Lord Jesus, may your spirit so work in my life that they will see the beauty of Jesus 
and they will understand in the beauty of Jesus and how I relate to them that you love them and that there's a hope for them just like there's a hope that has changed us. So there's a hope for them in the gospel that will change their heart someday. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so saddened to live in a world that keeps telling us that it's possible and actually the best way to play the game of chess is without any kind of chessboard and with as many chess players as you want. Lord, we know that that's a lie from the evil one. That is not freedom, that is bondage. And I pray, O oh Father, that you would help us understand how the gospel liberates. I pray that, Father, you, by your spirit, you would even liberate a heart of anyone here today who is still seeking to try to become better or who desires to hang on to the freedom to do whatever they want to do, who do not want to surrender to Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help them to see how, what a life of bondage that is apart from Christ. They're still living under the judgment and under the condemnation they'll have to face someday. Father, we thank you that you, Lord Jesus, have come to save sinners, the likes of us. And we thank you that you come with the intent of liberating us, not so that we might live in the flesh and enjoy the deeds of the flesh, but, Lord, so that we might show forth the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, may your Holy Spirit do a mighty work in us. Oh, Father, how I pray that we might be molded and melted and shaped and changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit so that people will begin to see the clear evidence of Jesus' saving work in our lives and becoming more and more like his character. And toward that end, we pray that we might know greater wholeness through the freedom we have in Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.